0: Her. Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park and 910 WTWD Plant City. It's time for Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
2: What's more, the second thing that Paul tells us about ourselves before conversion is that we were not interested in, in seeking after God, so that we might come to have righteousness placed on our account, who aren't even interested. Notice, he says in verse 11, there's none who understands, none who seeks after God. In other words, man is spiritually blind, so that he doesn't understand the truth of the gospel, he doesn't understand his sinfulness, and he's not interested in understanding. He's not interested in seeking after God, that he might understand how to be right with him.
1: Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we're continuing in a series of lessons from Chapter 2 of Ephesians about the power of God in salvation. Ducky, the medical examiner on the TV show NCIS, is quite a character. One of his quirks is that he talks to the cadavers on his autopsy table. He even asks them questions. And you know what? They never respond, except maybe in his imagination. And you probably think, of course they don't respond. They're dead. You know, that's how the Bible describes us before salvation. Spiritually dead. Totally unresponsive until the Holy Spirit brings us to life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are two of the first verses many of us memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are not saved by our own power or even by our own initiative. Even the faith we need comes from God. Here's Pastor Steve now to explain more fully.
2: Now Paul is concerned then that the Ephesians understand how God's power is demonstrated, has been demonstrated in their salvation. And so in these verses he instructs them, note this, he instructs them on the process, the mechanism, of salvation, meaning how God takes dead people, dead in sins, and he brings them eternal life. That's essentially what this is about. Having taught them in chapter 1 about salvation from God's perspective, in which he elected us to salvation in eternity past, here in chapter 2, Paul teaches them about salvation from their perspective, and by application from our perspective, so that we See how God works out this plan of salvation today so that we experience it. Now, what I plan to do with these verses is to go through them slowly. Not all tonight. We're only going to touch on this tonight, but I'm not going to rush through this. We're going to be very thorough. I'm in no hurry to rush through them. And the reason for that is because I want to make sure that we understand the doctrines that are taught here. Because these are the very doctrines, folks, that build us up in our faith. It's these doctrines that give us certainty, the assurance of our salvation. It's these truths that build humility in our lives because we understand from them that we had nothing to do at all with our salvation, and that therefore there is no room for boasting of anything connected with becoming a Christian. That God is the one we are to boast about, we are to glorify, we are to praise, we are to thank for saving us. These are the truths that lead us to extreme gratitude to God for saving us. Because we understand that if he had not demonstrated his power in saving us, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses and on our way to an eternal judgment in hell. Now, even though these verses are so important, someone may object spending so much time studying them, because they do tend to stir up controversy amongst Christians who embrace Arminian theology. There are some churches who would never even consider dealing with this, never touch on the sovereignty of God. So why teach this if it, if it causes problems? Well, simply put, it's because this isn't our word. It's the word of God. We don't have the option to pick and choose what we're going to teach God has said, all scripture is inspired by God. All of it is to be taught because it's all profitable. So it, it's God's word. We have to teach it. We have to study it. We don't have that option to pick and choose. Secondly, it's because these truths are intended to enrich our lives, to give us hope, a hope that is unshakable. I'm telling you, this is what builds the foundation of our Christian lives. This is what builds us in the faith. One Bible teacher, when asked why he taught about the sovereignty of God and salvation, said this, I know of nothing that is so strengthening to our faith, nothing which so builds my assurance, nothing which gives me such certainty about the blessed hope for which I am destined as the understanding of Christian doctrine, the understanding of the way, yes, the mechanism of salvation. Now, before we begin to look at these verses, there's something I feel that I need to clarify, and it's this, While these truths revealed in Ephesians chapter 2 are extremely important because they do help us to understand more about our salvation, we should all be aware that it isn't necessary for these truths to be accepted and believed in order for one to be saved. We need to understand that. Paul explains some of the mechanism of salvation, but it's not the plan of salvation right here. There's nothing even about the cross per se, right here. See, there are many in evangelical churches who not only don't agree with the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, but they are strongly opposed to the sovereignty of God and salvation. You bring up uh, any term associated with that, and they're upset. But just because they are opposed to these truths doesn't mean that they aren't saved. Understand that. See, a person isn't saved because he understands how salvation works. He understands the process, the mechanism, the details of it. A Christian, according to the Bible, is someone who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They are depending upon Christ, his death on the cross for their salvation. If that's true, then we reach out our hands to them as our brother, as our sister in Christ. Just because they have a limited understanding of how their salvation came to them doesn't mean that they haven't experienced salvation or that we have to withdraw our fellowship from them. It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a staunch proclaimer and defender of the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God in salvation, who said on one occasion, what an impudence it is for any of us to expel or withdraw from a fellow sinner saved by the same grace because we believe his deductions about how grace works are defective as compared with our own deductions. This said by a man whose preaching changed university students all throughout Wales because he preached on the sovereignty of God, the doctrines of grace. So, this is the background of these verses that form the opening section of Ephesians 2. And understand this, all of these verses are built around one primary truth. That one primary truth is the power of God as it is demonstrated in our salvation. The way Paul organizes his thoughts is that he explains how God's power is demonstrated in saving man by telling us three issues that are related to man. And I'm certainly using the term man here in a generic sense, men and women. He tells us, first of all, the depth of man's sin problem. Man has a serious sin problem. Secondly, he tells us God's provision for man in light of his sin problem. And then third, he tells us God's purpose for man in saving him from his sin problem. The first thing Paul tells us is God's power then is demonstrated in the depth of man's sin problem. Man is a serious problem. God's power is seen in that he is in a desperate situation. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, this is a very brief sentence, but I want you to know it's one of the most significant sentences in all of the New Testament. Why? Because it describes how desperate our situation was before God saved us. And our desperate situation, Paul says, is that you were simply dead. Not sick, not ill, not partly dead. You were dead. Period. Period. Now, obviously, the apostle is not saying we were physically dead because in the very next verse, he says, in which you formerly walked. So we were walking around. We were walking around as dead people. We were like, and I've said this before in the series on Calvinism, I don't think I'm the first to coin it, but we were spiritual zombies. We were like them. We were the walking dead, physically alive, but spiritually dead. So one can say that to live as a non-Christian is a form of living death. Only they don't know it. But we do. That's what Paul is teaching us. Now, what what does Paul mean by the fact that he says we were dead spiritually? Well, to understand what, what he means, we need to see what Jesus said. In John 17, verse 3, our Lord said in his high priestly prayer, he said, this is eternal life. He's praying to the Father. This is eternal life. It's another way of saying spiritual life. This is eternal life. That they, meaning his, his followers, may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said that eternal, spiritual life, which is the opposite of death, is to know God, meaning God the Father, and to know his Son, Jesus Christ. It means to have a relationship with the living God, a relationship in which we are responsive to him. We love him, we obey him, we listen to his word, we speak to him in prayer, and everything else that would be involved in having a relationship and knowing him. So if that's what eternal life means, that's what Jesus said it meant, to know God, have a relationship with him, then spiritual death means that there is no relationship with God. There is no knowing him in any kind of a personal way. Now, there may be some level of knowledge that one has, about God but one who is dead in sins and trespasses doesn't know God on a personal level because there's no spiritual life within that individual so just as a dead corpse is unresponsive to any physical stimulus and you you can see that when you go to a funeral there's an open coffin or casket one touches the body of a dead corpse, it's not responsive. So those who are spiritually dead are unresponsive to God, unresponsive to his word. They don't care about God. They're not interested in him at all. In fact, they're really quite hostile towards him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Let this sink in. This is the state of all unsaved people. Romans 8, verse 7. Paul said, because the mind set on the flesh, he's talking about unbelievers, is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Wow. These are our unsaved neighbors, our unsaved family members, our unsaved relatives. Those who are dead in sins and trespasses are hostile towards God himself. They are opposed to him. They're opposed to his standards of holiness. They hate these standards. They're not interested in living by these standards. They don't even have the capacity to live by them. And they're not interested in living by them anyway. And the reason for all of this is because they're dead. They have no ability to respond to God. They're not interested. They don't want to. And they don't have the ability to. In Romans 3, Paul says certain things about man before his conversion to tell us how bad the situation really was. Folks, this, this is what we were before our conversion. Romans chapter 3, there's a number of verses explaining man's sinfulness, but two critical verses are Romans 3, 10 and 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Not one righteous person on the earth. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Now, number one, Paul tells us that there is not one person who is righteous. This is a profound truth that most unsafe people have no clue about because they think that they possess some goodness, something that they can do to please God, at least to some degree, some good behavior that their good might outweigh their bad. Paul says that they possess no righteousness at all. This is why theologians in explaining Calvinism, which is just the opposite of Arminianism, named after John Calvin, a system of theology that that says that salvation is totally by God's power and by his grace. But this is why Calvinism states one of its cardinal doctrines is that we are totally depraved meaning we are completely depraved. Every part of us, our minds, our wills, our emotions, every part of our being has been infected by sin. Every part of us. We are totally, completely depraved. It doesn't mean that we can't do some nice things, but even our nice things have wrong motives. We have broken every one of the Ten Commandments in our hearts, every one and some of them in our actions. What's more, the second thing that Paul tells us about ourselves before conversion is that we were not interested in seeking after God so that we might come to have righteousness placed on our account. We weren't even interested. Notice, he says in verse 11, there's none who understands, none who seeks after God. In other words, man is spiritually blind so that he doesn't understand the truth of the gospel. He doesn't understand his sinfulness. And he's not interested in understanding. He's not interested in seeking after God that he might understand how to be right with him. He's blind, he's unrighteous, and he's uninterested in finding out how to change that. Now, this is the horrible plight of man. And what makes his condition so desperate is that Paul says later in this book, it's hopeless. Hopeless. No hope. Look at Ephesians 2. In fact, in this very chapter, Paul goes on to say in verse 12, he said, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope. Think about that. Absolutely hopeless. And the reason why we were so hopeless is because we had no righteousness by which we could please God and be accepted by Him. We had no understanding of how to be accepted by Him, and we had no interest in seeking Him so that we could find out how to be accepted by Him. Absolutely hopeless. There's no hope apart from God doing a work of grace in our, in our hearts. No hope for dead people. Can't make themselves alive. See, that is the crux of man's problem. So if the unconverted are dead in their sins and trespasses, and they're not interested in making any kind of a move towards God to seek Him and receive spiritual life, then how can they be made alive and saved by Jesus Christ? That's the point that Paul is moving towards. It's only by the power of God. And His mercy to extend that power to us, which makes us alive in Christ. I'm just going to jump over to verses 4 and 5, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Folks, that, that may be the most significant, wonderful news you've ever heard. Now, we down the road we will get to these verses, but I bring them up here because it is time for us to observe the Lord's Supper. And there's really nothing to observe if we just leave it that man is dead. The only thing we are celebrating is that he's been made alive in Christ. So you have to bring that out. We can't very well celebrate the death of Christ if we're still dead. His death is what brought us life. His mercy, his power. So, we move into that part of the Lord's Supper. Listen, He took us from being dead, unrighteous, hostile, hopeless sinners, and He gave us life. He did it. He did it. At His time and in His way, He broke into our lives. Just as He raised Christ physically from the dead, the Father has raised us spiritually from the dead. It's all by his power because dead sinners have no power at all to make themselves alive. How does a dead man repent? He can't. How does a dead man believe? He can't. A dead sinner can't repent. He can't believe. All he can do is rebel. It is God who gives us life and then we believe. That's why we love to remember Christ's death. That's why the Lord's Supper is exciting. Because it reminds us once again how great he is is what he's done for us and how much praise and gratitude we owe him now if you're not a christian then you ought to just let the elements pass you by the elements are for christians but i urge you to call out to god for his mercy only he can make you alive only he can turn your heart towards him only he can give you the faith to believe the gospel what is the faith that he gives you it is the faith to believe that christ died on your behalf as a sinner and the faith then to trust him alone for your salvation. Now let's pause for a few moments to give our God the thanks that's due his name and then we'll have our gentlemen pass out the elements. Father, we do thank you. Thank you with everything we have to express because our salvation is all of you. None of us, even the faith that we placed in you, is a gift from you. Thank you, Lord. But God, you made us alive. Lord, thank you for caring about lost, pathetic souls like us. Thank you for Christ for dying for our sins when we were just so helpless. Thank you, Lord, for caring about us, for becoming a man, for letting sinful, wicked people mistreat you putting you on a tree and hanging you there. And Lord Jesus, you knew what it was all about, that the Father turned his back on you. He abandoned you because you who knew no sin became sin for us. Lord, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you died and were punished eternally for us. So grateful that you chose us in yourself, So grateful that you, in your own sovereign way, broke into our lives at different times, in different ways, using different means, but always your word, to convict us of our sin, to bring us life, to give us the gifts, the gift of faith and repentance. And so we come to this moment, Lord, thanking you. Thanking you because we were hopeless. And for all of eternity, we will give you thanks. But right now, we are observing what you told us to do. So I pray that this will be a meaningful time for all of us, Lord. Meaningful time for me, for our men who pass out the elements, for every single believer here. To think about what it means that Christ has purchased them and died for them and given them life and forgiveness. And that you cared about us when we were so unlovely. Lord, for those who don't know You, I pray that this would be our witness to them, that as they see us worship You and give thanks to You, they would realize that You mean more to us than anything or anyone else, and that they would be provoked, stimulated to learn about what true Christianity is. So now, Lord, as we take the elements, help us to remember You and what You've done for us. We do pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. I don't know about you, but I am really glad that God took the initiative for my salvation. As we read in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, even the faith needed to trust in Christ comes from God. We do not have that within ourselves until He puts it there. He gets all the credit for saving each of us and all the glory forever. We're glad you could join us today for Verse by Verse, a daily radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. You can find out more about Lakeside at www.lakesidechapel.com. And you can find out more about Verse by Verse at versebyverseradio.org. We have hundreds of previous broadcasts available at no charge on the Message Archive tab. While there is no charge for any of those audio files, there are expenses involved in producing and broadcasting these radio programs. Perhaps you might pray about becoming one of our support team members. We have a special giving page on our website where you can contribute online, but we do ask that you do not neglect your home church. We want to say thanks for those of you who undergird us with prayers and underwrite us with gifts. May the Lord bless you abundantly. Today's class was the final part of a two-part message kicking off our series on the power of God in salvation. If you'd like to hear the entire message, you can ask for a CD by calling Lakeside at 727-239-0306. Ask for message 1084, The Power of God in Salvation, Part 1. That phone number again is 727-239-0306. In my college math classes, there were lots of formulas containing phrases like, as N approaches infinity. What does that mean? Well, N, which is an arbitrary number, cannot reach infinity. If it could, it wouldn't be infinity. But there is something that is infinite. It's how far we have come on our own from meeting God's standards, and therefore the level of sin debt that Jesus paid for us on the cross. It also shows the amount of power required to bring us to spiritual life. This is Jerry Peterson for Steve Kreloff, inviting you to tune in for our next Verse by Verse. Encouraging
0: you in Christ. Long before the pain, God was there. Long before the struggle, God was there. Someone want to ask somebody that was going through a trial, this is where was God when the tragedy happened? The answer was the same place he was when it was all good. Bates Talk 570 and 910 WTBN. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.